Uh, glad to be with you this morning. It's uh, always a unique privilege to preach, and a especially unique one to finish a preaching series. Uh, this is, if you've been counting and keeping track, our, our tenth and final sermon in the book of Colossians. So if you've been a part of that whole journey, then uh, this will be particularly exciting to you. If you've kind of jumped in the middle or missed pieces, uh, one of the benefits of technology is that it's all recorded and available. So if you want to go back and catch up on the things from our, our study of the book of Colossians that you've missed, or things that perhaps I referenced that throughout the book that don't make sense because you've, you've missed the teaching, you can go back and, and find those things. Um, so this morning, we are going to do really three different things that hopefully feel like one big thing. Really what we're doing is we're, we're concluding our study of Colossians and our preaching through the book, and we're going to do that uh, in, in three ways. The first thing we're going to do is uh, actually preach through the rest of the book. So we're going to take through uh, 4 verse 2 or so to the end of, of chapter 4 verse 18. We're going to we'll preach that section. Uh, then we're going to kind of pause and we're, we're going to do a, an overview of the book. What have we learned uh, in the last 10 weeks? What have we seen? Let's take the 10 weeks worth of kind of puzzle pieces and, and put them together. And then the third and final thing we're going to do together to conclude our study of Colossians is we're going to read the whole book. Uh, so at, when we get to that point, Jody will come up here and we'll switch back and forth because you'll be sick of my voice by then. Um, but it, it, each piece is going to be about 15 minutes or so, so it'll be the same, same sort of thing. So when I finish the sermon part, don't think it's been 45 minutes, and I was just particularly good this morning. It was about, about 15 minutes. Um, so that's what we're going to do, three pieces. So in chapter 4, we'll get right into it, we have come to the part of the letter uh, that most of us are inclined to ignore, or at least skim over really quickly, Right? It feels to me, in my study and in my reading of the epistles, this is kind of the epistle equivalent of a genealogy, right? Or, or uh, you know, sacrificial and ceremonial law, or plans for the tabernacle. They're there, and I'm sure they're really important for some reason. Somebody studied these things and said they were a big deal, but I, I just don't know why, right? Maybe this, this greeting section kind of feels irrelevant or not particularly useful or applicable, or it's just boring. It's a list of names, right? That's kind of how it feels. Uh, and I confess that those are things that I've thought and felt uh, even in preparing to preach this text, right? You read it the first time, and the, my gut reaction, you know, is, I got the end of the book again? <laughs> like, that's, that's the starting thought. Until you get into it, and, and I've spent some time studying it, and you realize, you know, this is in the Bible for a reason, and the Lord included this for us today for a purpose. So that's what we're going to get into for our first chunk of time together. So just to put this section in context, uh, the epistle of the, to the Colossians is just over 1,900 words. That's the total length. This greeting section, Paul spent about 300 of those words writing to members of the church and the Christian community. That's about 15% of the letter. So just, just in terms of, of mass, this section most of Paul's letters and many of the others in the New Testament also include greetings to the members of the church, maybe commendations to fellow ministers and workers in the gospel. He gives blessings, he receives blessings from previous letters, and he sends personal messages. And these letters, I find interesting, were intended to be read aloud to the church and to be distributed, which is really why we still have them, right? They were sent to other churches and copied. And if Paul was sending letters with messengers to these places, right, we even know who sent this one uh, back to 
uh, Colossae. It was either, you know, Tychicus or Onesimus. They traveled back. They were the messengers. They had this letter. Surely Paul could have and probably did include other personal letters, right? Maybe he had a letter to some other church leader. Maybe he had a letter to a specific person he wanted to communicate to. He had the ability to send personal messages, and I think very likely did. Yet, he still chose to include these kinds of personal items, this greeting section, in the more formal epistle to the churches, and specifically this epistle to this church. So I think what we should ask is, you know, big picture, why did Paul do this in the letter to the Colossians? Why did he do it generally? Why is this here, right? What was Paul's motivation in including this in his letter to the Colossians? And he had to have one, so at the end of it all, right, why is this important? Why do we need to care about these sections? Why do we need to read this section as scripture? So before I tell you why, let's, uh, let's read it. So we're going to go to Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 to 18. So if you turn there with me, I'll, uh, I'll read it for us. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So that's our text. The greetings, the commendations, the thanksgiving, all those personal things, all those list of names, that genealogy kind of feel, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let me give you three reasons why Paul included these greetings in the letter and why they're important to us. First thing, churches are people. I'm convinced that in Paul's thinking and in his experience, the beliefs of the church, the doctrines, the creeds, the practices, right, their theology, are and were functionally inseparable from the church itself, which is the people, right? A church is not a statement of faith. 
It's not a series of doctrinal positions or creeds. It's not a member's covenant or anything else. A church is a body of believers who are united in Jesus Christ. And I think Paul knew, as we should, that you can't separate the things a church believes from the people, literally the church. The Colossian church was people, right? We get some of their names, Epaphras, Onesimus, Nymphus, Archippus. The people of this church who Paul knew or knew of, their struggles, their challenges, their relationships, those things are what defined what Paul wrote to them in this epistle. Right? Paul didn't just mail them a standardized creed or, you know, Paul's Gospel 101. Right? He didn't send them just a doctrinal statement. He was seeking to help this body, this specific group of people who are united in Jesus Christ. Right? He was working to encourage them to exhort them, to teach and love them. It was about those people, their relationships, their struggles, and Paul shared relevant truth and doctrine and gospel with them according to who they were. That is what distinguishes his epistle from just, you know, a doctrinal statement or a creed. Incidentally, it's also what distinguishes sermons preached in your church, right, this sermon, from other sermons, every other sermon preached on the whole planet this morning, right? There's no other sermon who, uh, that is being directed at this body of believers in this place at this time, right? It's different than every sermon available on the internet, right? I know you, you know me, this sermon is for you, right? The people of this church and our relationships, our struggles, our challenges have defined what I've got to say to you this morning. Churches are people, and it's essential that we consider the people, the church, hand-in-hand hand with our teaching and our doctrine. So that's the first thing. Churches are people. The second reason Paul uh, includes these sections of greeting is that people are work. Churches are people, people are work. And I think, if you think through that, you know, why are people work? Well, I think it's just a part of who we are, right? People are work because we're people, Anytime you get a group of people, even a group of believers, Christians together, it's a heck of a lot easier to come up with a list of things that separate us than a list of things that unite us, right? Things that you or I might disagree on come to mind more quickly than the things that bring us together. That's a reality of getting a group of people, a group of Christians in the same room, in the same fellowship. That makes unity in Christ hard work. And we've seen indications of that all through the book of Colossians. Let me just read some, some text for you. From Colossians 1, Paul says, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That's a lot of work. Paul says, I toil for your maturity in the gospel, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Later he says in chapter 2, I struggle greatly for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And he describes Epaphras in chapter 4. Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, and he has worked hard for you. All right, Paul's ministry, the ministry of Epaphras, uh, you can follow other pastors and other epistles, demonstrate that unity is hard. People are hard work. Yet what we see in Scripture are constant calls to unity in Christ and unity in the gospel, despite the difficulties. 
right? The Colossian church was called to unity in spite of real differences that existed among them. Colossians 3.11, we preached a couple of weeks ago, says that in Christ, there is not Greek or Jew. There is not circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. That statement kind of makes it seem simple, right? You get people together in a church and all of a sudden these things go away, right? But we know that isn't true. Even this statement is, is an example, I think, of one of those already true but not yet true kind of realities, right? We talk about those things. We are holy and purified in Christ. We are sanctified, but we are becoming holy and pure in Christ, right? In the church, there are no divisions. Christ is all and in all, and yet we work hard on unity in Christ and overcoming division and things that separate us. Right? Even in our text this morning, Paul lists a bunch of people who are helping him and who are a part of his ministry, and I don't know if you noticed, but he separated them by the Jews and the Gentiles. He lists a bunch of guys, he says, those are all the men of the circumcision who have helped me. Right? In, in Paul's ministry, in the church, those realities, those physical, cultural, social, uh, even doctrinal differences don't go away. They're a part of the fabric of who we are. They shouldn't affect how we relate to one another, but they don't disappear. Right? In the Colossian church, there literally were all the things Paul listed. Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, in their church. Right? Those physical realities don't evaporate when people come to Christ. And so all that to say, the defining element of what a church is, the people, make it hard work. The physical, the social differences, those obstacles that existed in their fellowship— and in every other church Paul wrote to, right, those social, cultural, doctrinal things, they were a part of what made up their church that would, in one sense, separate them from one another. But what, Christ, what Paul says is that in Christ those things do not matter. They should not matter to them or to us because right now Christ is all and he's in all. And in the end, he will be all and in all. In light of the unity we have in Christ, what are the things that separate us, that make us different? So that's the second thing, people are work. The third reason I think Paul includes this section is because work needs encouragement. I don't know about you, but for me, hard work is so much easier when I have been encouraged, right? When someone offers a word of encouragement, of affirmation, of, of thankfulness, or appreciation— or when I'm encouraged by looking to a, a positive role model who I can aspire to and who inspires me to work well. Or when someone perhaps come al comes alongside me and, and helps me to do the work that I'm doing. Those things are all encouraging. And those things are all encouraging in the hard work in the body of Christ, right? Encouragement is crucial in doing this work together well. I think Paul knew that, and so in this section, he provides encouragement by doing all of those things. First thing, he provides encouragement through words. He does this throughout the letter, but he does this in this specific section. Throughout the letter, in chapter 1, he says, I have been praying that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and for patience with joy. Later in chapter 2, I want you to know of my struggle for you that your hearts 
might be encouraged. And later he says in chapter 4 in our text this morning, he sends Tychicus to them so that their hearts might be encouraged, so he can relate to them what's going on in his ministry and in his life. And he specifically encourages a number of members of their church. He describes them as, you know, fellow servants, fellow workers, uh, people doing work for them and for Christ. Their work needs encouragement. He also encourages them through positive examples, right? Not just his own example. He does that in other letters. He says, look to me as, as I follow Christ. But he puts before them several brothers, several uh, workers in Christ who they know or are going to see them. And he says, look at these people. Imitate them. Be encouraged by them. So he gives them positive examples. He writes of uh, Tychicus. He says, Tychicus is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. That's an example worth following. It says, Onesimus is also our faithful and beloved brother, and he's one of you. Epaphras, who's also one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, and he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, so you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness, he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Now, Paul doesn't just commend uh, these men because they work hard at anything, right? We can work hard at all kinds of stuff that doesn't benefit the body. He, benefits, he, he commends these men because their hard work is for the sake of others. It's for the sake of the body of Christ. It's for the sake of the church in Colossae. That is the kind of thing that's worth aspiring to. Epaphras is described as a faithful servant not just because he struggled and worked hard, but because he struggled on their behalf, and he worked hard for them, right? I can struggle and work hard on all kinds of stuff, but they may not be, you know, an ounce of earthly or heavenly good for this body of Christ, and that might be good work and hard work and a struggle in a sense, but it isn't something that the body can aspire to. It's not an example set for other believers. Instead, what I should aspire to, as, as these men did and set the example of, is hard work and struggle for the sake of the body. That's worth imitating. That's worth following. That's an example worth setting. So Paul puts those men forward for that purpose. The third thing Paul does in this section to encourage them is he encourages them by helping them. Now, Paul, of course, can't do that directly. He can't go to Colossae. He's, he's in prison at this point. But he is able to send them others. He sends Tychicus and Onesimus to help them in their work. And he says specifically, so you would know how we are and that they might encourage your hearts. Right? These men are going back to the church or to the church in Colossae to join them in their work. Co-laboring, working alongside someone is a wonderful form of encouragement, right? You can be in the middle of the most frustrating job, and if someone shows up and you're kind of at your wit's end, someone shows up to help you, it changes the whole game. You have to stand there and watch it happen, right? It, they don't have to do anything necessarily. They can be with you, co-labor, alongside, shoulder to shoulder. Think about a, uh, a rowboat, or a canoe, something that you paddle, right? Have you ever been in a canoe with another person, and you're, say, you're in the stern, you're paddling away? If the person in the front doesn't do anything, it's possible for you to get where you're going, but it's frustrating, and it's hard. It's a lot of work. As soon as that person begins to paddle with you, 
in the same direction you're going, right, with the same end goal in mind, how much easier is your labor? Our church, any church, doesn't fit in a canoe, right? Pictures, have you ever seen those dragon boat things, the massive rowboats? I don't know how big they are. Say the length of the room this way. You whack, what, 20 or 30 people rowing in those things? That's a big boat, right? If you're three people trying to row a dragon boat, where are you going, honestly, right? But when everybody in that boat is rowing together for the same purpose, to the same place, unified in their purpose of rowing, right? They're encouraged by all these things, perhaps by a word, by their neighbor, by definitely by co-labor, and by the example being set by all the other rowers. When you're in a rowboat, you don't stop rowing because everybody else is still rowing, right? You don't stop rowing because there's a guy at the front yelling at you to keep rowing, encouraging you to do so, right? You don't stop rowing because there's people helping you. Our church parallels that, I think, very well. Right? The work we're doing to maintain unity, to do the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is so much easier when we encourage each other in all of those ways. Right? Through words, through setting positive examples for one another, and through helping one another. So all that to say, our church is people. Every church is people. People are necessarily hard work. And that hard work needs encouragement. So my hope from this text is that we would seek to encourage one another as we co-labor in the gospel, as we work together for unity in Christ in this fellowship of believers, as we row together. Let's encourage one another through words of affirmation and encouragement, by setting an example in the way we work for the sake of others in this body, and by laboring alongside one another in the work of this fellowship. That completes our preaching journey through the book of Colossians and, and the first part of our time together this morning. So that was not 45 minutes. It wasn't just really excellent and felt quick. Uh, it was about, it was supposed to be 15, but it was probably 20, and that's okay. The second thing we're going to do this morning, uh, also to complete our study of the book of Colossians, is go through kind of the major themes and things we've learned of the whole book, just to put all the pieces together. Right, in the last 10 weeks, we've basically created 10 kind of puzzle pieces that each contain a part of the book of Colossians. So to really see the whole picture, the whole letter in its entirety, we need to spend a few minutes putting all those things together. So in an effort to do that, we're going to answer uh, two questions together in the next couple of minutes. The first question is, what have we learned? And the second question is, when should I return to the book of Colossians? So, first question, what have we learned? So, I'm going to highlight three major things that we've, we've consistently gone to, three major themes throughout our preaching of this book in the last ten weeks. The first thing that we have learned is Jesus alone is preeminent, which means that no one can be compared to Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater, more important more powerful than anything or anyone else at any time, in any place, in all the world, in all the universe. Paul writes about this in chapter 1. He says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. Jesus is indeed over all. There is nothing and no one greater than him. Jesus alone is preeminent. That's the first thing that we've seen. The second thing we've seen throughout the book is that Jesus alone is sufficient. Jesus has secured for us our past and present and future reality in him. Right? Through his death and resurrection, we have been declared righteous. We have been made holy and pure and are being made holy and pure. We will be brought into a glorious future with him, past, present, future, in Christ. Right? Day by day, we seek to grow in that holiness he secured for us. We put off the flesh. We put on the things of Christ, knowing that our salvation our holiness, and our future glory are secure in Christ. Throughout Colossians, Paul has written things about this. In chapter 1, it says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. In chapter 2, 13, You who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Chapter 127, he says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And in chapter 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not only has Christ done and does he continue to do these things, but there's also nothing at all that we can do to add to these works of Christ. Paul even tells us what to think about the things that promise to add to that work, right? The things that the world promised to add to the work of Christ, to add to our salvation, to add to our sanctification. Paul writes in chapter 2, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And he writes, those who insist on these things are puffed up without reason by their minds of the flesh and are not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. All that to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ is all we will ever need. His work cannot be added to. It doesn't need to be. And we would be wrong to even try to do so. Jesus alone is sufficient. The third thing that we've seen consistently through the book is that Jesus alone is changing us. The, the book of Colossians sets an expectation for change in our lives due to Jesus Christ. Right, and change in two ways. One, an instantaneous change at the moment of salvation when Christ, through his work, declared you righteous and he made you holy. You became a son or daughter of God. You became a brother of Christ. You became adopted into the family of God at a moment. There's instantaneous change that happens through Jesus Christ. But there is also an expectation for progressive change, right? We are to become more and more like Christ, more holy like Him, more pure 
as we put the flesh in us to death and as we put on more and more Jesus Christ. And we do this through the power of the Holy Spirit in us and with our future glory through Christ firmly in sight. This progressive change happens because in that moment of instantaneous change, the moment of salvation, who you are changes. What is natural to you changes. You are not a reprobate, uh, total, complete, absolute sinner who's rejected God and cannot accept Him anymore. You are a saint in Jesus Christ, and your heart, who you are, has changed in a moment. And what happens from now till the end is the working out of that change in our lives. What's changed is that sin is no longer the thing that is natural to us. It cannot be. Our heart has changed. Paul describes this journey in chapter 3 in the, the putting off and the putting on section using all past tense language. Listen to what he writes. He says, you once walked in these things. You were living in them. We have put off the old self, and we have put on the new self. We have changed. We are no longer the same. Fundamentally, who we are is different, and that change will become evident, as we saw at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, in every area of your life, in all of your relationships, far beyond the ones that Paul lists here, right? Marriage, children, workplace. Every relationship you have, every person you know, everything you do now ought to come out of this fundamentally different heart and different person that is renewed in Jesus Christ. It's not about breaking bad habits, right? It's a fundamental shift in who you are, a change in your deepest desires, an upending of your priorities, your goals. It's a complete change of thinking. That's what we've seen in the book of Colossians, that Christ is preeminent, that He is sufficient, and that He is changing us. So the second question I'd like to answer together now is, when do I go back to the book of Colossians? Right? It's one thing to preach through it for 10 weeks. It's another thing to look and say, okay, we've studied this book. When is it helpful for me in my life to go back to it, to reread it, to revisit sermons or sermon notes or my own Bible study notes, those kinds of things? When do you go back? So this is not an exhaustive list, but I, I came up with five. So return to the book of Colossians when you need. Number one, return to Colossians when you need a big view of Jesus. When it seems to you like the world is spinning out of control, things are going wrong, chaos is everywhere, come to Colossians to get a big view of Jesus. To remember that He is the preeminent one, that He is all-powerful, that He is the creator and sustainer of all things, and that He is the source of all wisdom and knowledge, that Christ is the means of our reconciliation to God. He's our redemption. He's our forgiveness, and He is our only sure hope of glory. Come to Colossians to remember that He is indeed Christ Jesus the Lord, and that we need a big view of Him. I'd encourage you to come back to Colossians when you need a gospel reset. When something in your life tries to add to the gospel, 
or you find yourself doubting the work of Christ in your life, or trying to add to it, or trying to justify your salvation, or earn it in any way, when your answer to the question, what makes me a Christian, is anything other than the saving work of Jesus Christ alone, when that answer is Jesus and, or when that is I am morally good, or when that is whatever, come to Colossians to reset your understanding of what the gospel is, to remember that nothing can be added to the complete and sufficient work of Jesus Christ in your life. Nothing. Third, return to Colossians when you need strength for the battle, whatever it is. When you find yourself fighting to be faithful, when the Christian life is hard, and it will be, when you encounter real adversaries and difficulties in your life, when you realize you cannot make it on your own, come to Colossians. Remember that Christ will strengthen us, as is written, with all power for endurance and patience with joy. Come to Colossians to remember the necessity and the power of unceasing, steadfast, watchful, and thankful prayer. And remember that by these things, we will be given strength for every situation, every battle, every difficulty in our life through Jesus Christ. Fourth thing, come back to Colossians when you need encouragement in your sanctification. When your sin and your flesh have found a foothold, when you have repented of the same thing one too many times, when you've been trying on your own to work out your salvation to no avail, with no success, come to Colossians and remember that your sanctification is a work completed in Christ. And that he is working it out in you day by day to put off the flesh and to put on himself. Remember the completed work of sanctification in you by Jesus Christ is the greatest encouragement we could ask for as we seek to be more like him. It's already done. It's guaranteed. In the end, it will be true of us. We will be holy before the Lord because of Christ. Fifth and final thing, come back to Colossians when you need perspective on your life. When you need purpose, or life feels meaningless, or your life seems out of balance, out of proportion, or something is getting more attention in your thinking in your heart than it should be, come to Colossians for that real, biblical, Christ-centered, gospel-centered perspective. To remember that in light of our glorious future with Christ, why would we set our minds on this earth? To remember that in light of the unity we have in Christ, as we saw this morning, why would we focus on the differences we have in the body? To remember that in light of the fullness and the substance that is truly in Christ, everything else that offers salvation to us, that offers change in our hearts, are just shadows that have no value with an appearance only of wisdom. Come to Colossians to remember and give yourself a proper view of Christ, which will give you a proper estimation of yourself.
So if your life in Christ, day to day, is anything like mine, we should be in Colossians all of the time, right? One of those things is probably true in my life on any given day. I might need perspective because I have a much too large view of myself or a much too large view of my role in my workplace or a much too bi- a big, big view of my role in our church or maybe because I have too big of a view of my sin even. Gain perspective through Christ, right? One of these things on any given day is going to be true of me and probably true of you. So spend time in Colossians. So all that to say, I think we can together praise God for the book of Colossians. Amen? It is an incredible source of truth and wisdom as we seek to live like Jesus Christ. Praise God for this book. I'm going to pray to really conclude our teaching of the book of Colossians. Then we're going to do our third thing together, which is to read the book. So let me pray, and then we'll do that. Lord, I thank you for this glorious book, this source of truth and wisdom. Lord, that we can see all the things that are true about Jesus Christ. And even that, Lord, it's not all the things, it's but a a glimpse, a glimmer, a hope. What we see in, in a glass or a mirror dimly, Lord, Christ is preeminent. Christ is over all. He has done all things for us. And we have salvation, holiness, glory through and in him. We thank you for that, that we can rest in the surety and the safety and the the secureness of Jesus Christ and his finished work. We thank you for this book, the encouragement that it is to us in unity together, in our sanctification that you're working out in us. Lord, we pray that we would Uh, remember the the call to encouragement, to encourage one another and love one another as as Paul loved this church and sought to encourage them in chapter 4. I pray that would be true of us as well. And Lord, this final thing we do this morning, I pray that you would just bless the reading of this book, that it would further confirm and solidify the truths that we have seen, and that we would just be able to enjoy basking in the Word of God. I pray these things in your name. Amen.